0: In this week's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I interviewed as a guest speaker on the Nurture Hub podcast with Shari and Nicola. Shari and I met at one of her Gold Coast hypnobirthing courses that I attended with my partner earlier this year. And, of course, the two of us got chatting about all things oral glucose tolerance tests and iron deficiency in pregnancy and decided to record a podcast about it. So this episode is a re-airing of me being interviewed on their podcast. In this episode, we cover the mismanagement of iron that is also common in pregnancy. We also cover how to be proactive about avoiding an infusion in pregnancy, and we delve into the also controversial glucose tolerance test. Of course, it goes without saying that if you feel something like the oral glucose tolerance test is the best for you, then that's wonderful. But what I hope that this episode shows you is that you nearly always have more options Sometimes they're just not presented to you that way and you have to know how to ask for them. Before we dive into this week's episode, if you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is by booking in a complimentary consultation with me. In this 15-minute consultation, we'll discuss your current health challenges and goals, what you can expect from consultations, and the likely time frame that you can expect for us to achieve these goals together. We can, course cover any questions that you might have. And if you're wanting to go ahead at the end of that complimentary consultation, we will find a time for your initial consultation so you can officially get started. But equally, if you need time to think about it, there's absolutely no pressure on you by booking in this complimentary consultation. So, if you would like to book in a time to chat, all you need to do is head to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you can also find that direct link in the show notes on the current podcast app that you are listening to me on right now. So you can go ahead and find that and book in a time to chat. And I can't wait to help you achieve your health goals.
1: Well, welcome, Céline, to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this cold and chilly morning <laughs> on the Gold Coast.
0: <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me, both of you. This is actually my first interview with two, in, two um, interviewers, I guess, so I'm very excited. <laughs>
2: oh, welcome. <clears throat> it's so good to have you in here. And what an amazing subject today, all about nutrition and pregnancy and, and fertility as well.
1: And we're going to ask some questions that a lot of our clients ask us just in regards to gestational diabetes, you know, iron levels and things like that during pregnancy. So we can't wait to delve into into these topics with you because it is becoming so, um, paramount, like with the testing and everything that's mm-hmm. being done, gestational diabetes in pregnancy seems to be rising. And mm-hmm. I just, we'd, we'd love to just understand a little bit more, you know, why, but first of all, we'd love to just hear your, your story. Cause you're so pregnant yourself. That's how mm-hmm. we met. You came right. to one of my classes. It was, I think last month, wasn't it? The, yeah. Yeah. So, and that's where we connected and I was like, I've got to get you on. (laughs) Um, So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a nutritionist.
0: Yeah. Um, so like I think many health practitioners, my journey started through my own personal experience. Such a classic cliche story. I think for women in general, I went on birth control very young. So 15, 16 came off it and had no menstrual cycle whatsoever. About a 19, something like that went to a, um, and I'm skipping lots of details here for time's sake, but you know, went to a a women's health doctor or GP. Um, and was sent away for further testing, an ultrasound and blood testing, and was essentially told, just go back on the pill until you're ready to have a baby. Um, That's the best option. And I'd love to say that, you know, working now in clinic, that advice has changed, but I quite frankly can say that it, it hasn't. And so that whole experience really sent me down a journey of kind of looking for alternate options really and alternate health advice, if you want to call it that. So I met a naturopath and she went through my test results with me and was like, oh, no, no, no these results are not fine at all. Basically, it looks like you've gone through menopause at 19 because I had no hormonal activity at all. And so we did a whole range of different things, mainly dietary changes, herbs, acupuncture, a whole list of different things really. And then within, it was about three months, three, four months, I did have a cycle back and have had one ever since. But really that process kind of opened my eyes to issues with women's health in general. And Just also how life changing it can be when you find that health practitioner or that person that listens to you properly and also can provide advice, I guess, that makes a difference for you. So as cliche as it is, that was sort of my like catalyst event, if you will. And I was doing something completely different at the time, had not really much prior interest in sort of, you know, nutrition or studying a health degree or anything like that. But I, um, uh, after that experience went off and did a, um, I actually did a nutrition and dietetics degree at Griffith uni. Um, so quite a conventional degree, but knew that I didn't want to be a dietitian at the end of it. I was more aligned with the air quotes sort of natural or complementary medicine side of things. Um, So I did that and now I'm actually doing a master's in reproductive medicine as well. And I have my own online clinic uh, where I work with women all across Australia and sort of all sorts of hormonal issues. And now also, you know, through my own experience of being pregnant at the moment, um, have been doing a lot more sort of preconception care work and um, pregnancy, postpartum, that kind of thing as well
2: wow what a journey (laughs) i can see see that naturally would have gone that way hey Mm. um a question that i i know for sure and it's something that having worked with pregnancy now for such a long time myself is the concerns that women have about their own nutrition in pregnancy and Mm. and and to be able to understand what that looks like Mm. open that up for us
0: yeah i think I see that a lot in clinic where women might feel more anxious or more pressure um, around being as healthy as they can be at eating the, all the air quotes, like correct and right foods. If you want to keep it super simple, like real food, so food from the ground, from a tree or from an animal, you really can't go too wrong. If you're sticking mostly with those foods, obviously you don't have to be an angel, but as much as possible, like 80-90% there. Um, However, what I recommend to especially all my preconception clients, ideally like three to six months before you're falling pregnant is amazing. But if you haven't allowed for that time, that's also totally okay, don't freak out, Um, is getting a full spectrum of different blood tests done so that we can actually see what nutrients you might be deficient in Leading into what we're going to talk about, obviously in this interview, looking at your blood sugar control as well and where that's sitting at. Um, but we want to look at things like iron. We want to look at things like zinc because I know a lot of women just kind of take a prenatal and think that that's maybe. The end of it, and you know, I'm sure maybe this has been touched on, but like please no one ever take elephant. I hope I'm allowed to say that, but please don't ever do that. So you want to take a good quality prenatal with natural forms of folate, um, ideally around three months before, but also understanding that a prenatal is like a very small insurance policy. If you have quite significant nutrient deficiencies, it's just not going to touch the sides for a lot of things. Say, for example, if there's a you know iron deficiency present and you've not identified that you're obviously going to be at risk of you know iron infusions later in pregnancy because quite frankly the reference ranges i suppose that are used across australia are just far too loosey-goosey so we're just not we're not picking up i guess like early issues with those sorts of nutrients so i think you can get really really personalized with your nutrition and supplements if you're doing that blood testing because we're basically it's like taking your car to the mechanic really you're able to get a look under the hood at sort of what's going on in your particular in your particular blood and and your nutrient status and make things a lot more personalized than just kind of like standard across the board pregnancy nutrition but i think you know if that's not available to you or you don't um, sort of have the capacity to work with a practitioner, that's also fine. Um, But just real foods, um, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, food from the ground, from a tree, from an animal, you really can't go too wrong um, if you're mostly aiming for that.
1: So what are the signs of an iron deficiency Mm -hmm. for women in pregnancy? Because, I mean, like early pregnancy, like you're tired anyway, like, I mean, I think it was only really a few weeks for me that I felt like really good. I, mm. I felt tired, but I didn't believe, I don't, I never was tested for for iron, but mm-hmm. um yeah. Could you give us a little, just for our listeners to understand, like yeah. what are the signs
0: or symptoms of an iron deficiency? So signs and symptoms will be shortness of breath, which again, kind of Frustrating in pregnancy because you kind of feel short of breath anyway, but shortness of breath, um, often dark circles under the eyes, easy bruising, fatigue, it can be anxiety as well. A lot of people don't realize that anxiety is often a symptom of low iron, as is um, insomnia and sleeplessness. So there's a lot of crossover in general, just from the pregnancy hormones and all the changes that your body's going through. It's very easy to sort of miss that or blame the fatigue because fatigue is that you sort of the your key symptom of iron deficiency just on being pregnant, right, and growing a human. But with iron, I recommend, you know, trimester one, you really want to be getting that done. So full iron studies, you also want to be getting your um, full blood count as well. Um, So not just ferritin. Ferritin is like the marker that most um, GPs or doctors will look at alone. You don't want to just get that test done because it's just a, it's only basically part of the information that we need. Um, And you also want to get something done called high sensitivity CRP, which stands for C-reactive protein. So this is a marker of non-specific inflammation. Um, So if you have inflammation present in the body, that's actually going to uh, change the act accuracy of your iron results as well. And then on, on that, you know, making sure that the testing is done accurately is really important. So first thing in the morning, get it done fasted, no exercise beforehand, all that sort of thing. And then ideally you want to have that done trimester one. If you haven't had it done then that's okay, but trimester two, and then you can make really informed decision based on I guess where those markers are at about how you're gonna move forward and be preventative about not needing an iron infusion.
2: I think what I noticed for myself, because I was iron deficient, I'm mm. naturally that anyway, the the GP just they didn't really sort of give me a good idea of how like how bad it was, or mm. they just kept having I kept having iron infusions but never actually felt much better to be fair <laughs> through both my pregnancies. Is would you suggest then that perhaps a GP can look at it but they would might need to take a second opinion if they don't feel better because often um, a woman will go and present themselves at a GP and, and they think they're okay when actually mm. they're still not feeling better.
0: Yeah definitely I mean I can give specific markers I know I said before it's not just about ferritin but You know, for um, simplification, trimester one, you really want a ferritin of a minimum 50, which the standard reference range cutoff is 30. So if you're starting off pregnancy with a ferritin of 30, you're going to find it very difficult to actually not end up in a position where you're needing an infusion. Because what happens in pregnancy is trimester one, there's not much change in terms of your iron requirements. Trimester two, baby's needs really start to increase. Um, and then by, tri- you know, the end of trimester two, around about 26 weeks, um, you've got hemodilution hemo starting to occur. Babies need significantly increasing in trimester two. And so your iron requirements are going up, but also the blood volume that you're having is becoming greater. So that marker is also becoming more dilute in solution. So that's important to understand is that your iron is going to go down in pregnancy, regardless of what you do. And that's a natural, normal physiological adaptation of pregnancy. It is supposed to happen. You know, speaking, I guess, from my own experience, I had a ferritin of just over a hundred when I started pregnancy, which was the highest mine's ever been. So I really worked on that getting that nice and high. I'm now trimester three and it's 35. It's still normal and it's still fine and healthy for trimester three, but you know, a GP could potentially look at that and say, "Oh, that's a huge drop. You know, maybe you should get an infusion." So, I guess just to go through that trimester one, you really want to be looking for around a minimum of fifty because that's going to basically mean that you've got enough iron to kind of keep you going, ideally, throughout the trimesters. And if you don't have a uh, have a ferritin of fifty, that's where we'd be looking at if you eat. Um, red meat we'd really be wanting to be look at increasing um, if we can depending on what food aversions you might have beef and lamb in those in that early trimester and maybe even prophylactically using like a low dose iron supplement so we don't have to go too much into that but like please no one take multifer or Ferrograd C because they'll make you feel constipated and sick most of the time and they're too high dose they're actually They're not very effective at increasing your iron levels. You want something that's low, so no more than 50 milligrams and taking that every second day. And then trimester two and three, we really need to just understand that your iron is going to go down. And we're not supposed to be basically applying standard reference ranges for women in trimester two and three. And that is what's commonly done. So The standard reference range for iron, if you're not pregnant, would be bottom of the rung 30, which might go up to, depending on the lab and where you are in Australia, 150 to 200, let's say, being the top. But what we know from how your iron status is supposed to naturally change during pregnancy, what we should be looking for in those later trimesters is basically a ferritin of say 15 to 40 being acceptable um, and then making sure as well that we're looking at your hemoglobin and maintaining that over 105. So it's quite different to sort of, what you would be looking for if you weren't pregnant. Um, but we just really need to understand that it's not suitable to apply those standard reference ranges to pregnant women in those later stages of pregnancy because your requirement for iron is just so much higher than it was previously and the baby's needs are increasing so much.
1: Wow. That's
0: so, so useful. How effective are the iron infusions? <laughs> um, well, basically, Again, this is kind of another issue. If your ferritin's not below 15 and your hemoglobin is not under 105, you're not considered anemic. So you have low iron, but you're not considered anemic. Now, from the research, it's basically if you're not anemic, it's actually completely inappropriate to be prescribing an infusion. And very commonly I see that being recommended where, you know, say in my situation, I had a really good ferritin, it's dropped to 35. If mine was, say, 20, I wouldn't be surprised if a GP recommended that I get an infusion because it's like, wow, that's such a big drop and kind of like panic mode is is kind of ignited, I guess. Um, And what we know is that basically if your ferritin is not under 15, you'll be provided that infusion, your ferritin will shoot up. So it might go up to, say, even into the 300 marks because an infusion for I guess um, context is about the same amount of iron delivered in a matter of minutes that it would take you to eat in a year of consuming red meat so it is a huge amount of iron so it does increase your ferritin now ferritin for anyone that's not sure is your storage form of iron iron stored within the liver but it's not a marker of iron delivery throughout the body so it's kind of like what you have in the storage cupboard but not not representing what's being delivered to the tissues and what we know from a few research papers is that um, if someone's not truly iron deficient and truly anemic sorry the transferrin which is another marker in your iron status panel starts to go down now transferrin actually represents The delivery of iron across the placenta to the baby as well. And so that's really interesting because if say an infusion is being incorrectly recommended, there is the potential that, you know, we get this big rise in ferritin, which is maybe going to appease the healthcare provider, but possibly not going to actually improve the baby's delivery of iron. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, in general with iron, we just want to be on the front foot with it because it's really, really easy to end up in a situation where you do have a ferritin under 15 if that iron hasn't been correctly managed. And if you were starting out pregnancy with low iron um, and you were Sort of proactively looking at improving that, whether it's through diet and supplements, I would really be getting at least a hemoglobin and a ferritin test done, maybe every like 10 to 12 weeks, just so that if there is any issues there, you're not waiting until you're in trimester three to pick that up, which is commonly what's happening. And then you're left in a situation where all of a sudden it's a surprise to you that you're finding out your ferritin's under 15 and an infusion's being recommended to you. If you really need an infusion and you are iron-deficient anemic, then, you you know, if that's recommended, I do think that's an appropriate suggestion. You should get one. I'm not saying that kind of, you know, across the board they're bad or no one should be getting them, but it's just understanding whether that is an appropriate suggestion or whether you just have low iron as a normal part of pregnancy. Um, And then I think also um, making sure that hopefully we're managing that correctly. And, you know, I'd like to say that... that your healthcare provider will sort of keep on top of that for you. But unfortunately, I just don't really see that being the case. I think that we sadly need to be informed about these things ourselves and take it upon ourselves to be asking these questions and asking about getting testing done. Yeah.
2: That's amazing Um, and sad at the same time. Yeah. Um, So Shari and I often talk about this. It's like a real passion (laughs) conversation for us and for you, I know. Talk to us about the procedure for testing for gestational diabetes.
0: Yes, I would love to. So (laughs) GDM or gestational diabetes is commonly screened for around about 26 to 28 weeks. And the Gold standard test for that is the oral glucose tolerance test or the OGTT. So the test is basically to screen for how well your body clears glucose from your bloodstream. And it is to screen for gestational diabetes. That's what we're looking for with that test. The test itself involves uh, going to the pathology lab and sitting down for two hours and drinking 75 grams of glucose so for context 75 75 grams of glucose is the equivalent of two cans of coke or 18 teaspoons of sugar and then you're meant to drink it within a five minute period and then they basically measure your blood sugar response or what's left in your blood um, at one hour and two hours after drinking that solution And the reason that it's done at that point in pregnancy is because naturally, at that point in pregnancy, you do become slightly more insulin resistant. That's a natural normal part of pregnancy. It's actually to allow your body to deliver more nutrients to the baby. Uh, So that is supposed to happen. And so that's why the recommendation is to screen women at that particular point. Now, I think a big misconception with GDM is that women just sort of spontaneously develop gestational diabetes in pregnancy, and it kind of just comes out of nowhere. But it's just quite frankly, not true. I think there's a lot of, I guess, stigma around getting a GDM diagnosis as well for women. So I just want to, I guess, highlight that and know that if you do get diagnosed with it, it's really not the end of the world. Like you can manage your blood sugar really effectively in a matter of days, and the most effective way to do that is through diet. And we can go through some specific ways that you might um, do that. But I guess the issues I have with the test is that it's not really appropriate for everyone to be doing that test. So say, for example. Um, and I know, Shari, you talked about this a lot in your course, is like, if you don't know that options A, B and C exist, you'll probably only be offered option A. And I found this in my own personal experience and obviously working with clients. I'm always talking to my trimester one and preconception clients about, you know, alternate options and even later in pregnancy as well. But from my own experience, what I did in trimester one and what I recommend my clients do as well as go and get an insulin test or fasting insulin test, an HbA1c test and a fasting blood glucose test. The reason is that this is the most effective way to really assess your risk. Now, I obviously already knew from how I eat that I was going to be very low risk anyway. But what that told me is that my fasting blood glucose was under five. My HbA1c was under 5.3% and my fasting insulin was between three and five. So that's really what you're looking for to be like, okay, I am low risk for GDM. And so then when that conversation did come up with my doctor, it was interesting the It wasn't, you know, we need to screen you for gestational diabetes. There's Here are some different options that, you know, you might be interested in. It was like, at your next appointment, I'm going to give you the referral to go and do your oral glucose tolerance test. End of discussion. Like, you just got option A. And I sort of said, well, you know, from my understanding, I'm very low risk. This is how I eat day to day anyway. And these were all my markers in um, pregnancy. So in trimester one, pardon me. So I'm actually not going to go and do the glucose tolerance test. I said, if you really want me to, I can do some at home glucose monitoring once I hit 26 weeks, but I'm not going to go and sit there and drink the equivalent two cans of Coke when I would just never consume that on a day-to-day basis anyway. And from a logical perspective, as someone who doesn't eat like that, I wouldn't really want to be doing that to my body or my baby at that point in pregnancy anyway. For the test to be accurate, which is often not explained to people either, you need to be eating 150 grams of carbs a day leading up to the test. So that's the equivalent 10 slices of bread. Now, there's plenty of other ways to get carbohydrates in, obviously, fruit, potato, rice, bread and cereals and things but just for context like you know if someone's eating like a, a pale, maybe a paleo sort of style diet or naturally eating slightly lower in carbohydrates the test itself isn't going to actually be accurate for them and now i fall into that camp of eating probably on un- like quite standardly around 100 120 grams a day and The doctor would have never explained that to me, right? So had I not had that knowledge, I would have gone and done the test. And in doing that would mean I have a very high chance of having what's called a false positive um, result from that test, whereby because I don't eat um, 75 grams of carbs, I nearly eat that in a day. I'm not going to have a very positive response to that test. My body's really going to struggle to actually clear that sugar from my bloodstream. Um, And the reason that that happens is because your body sort of gets used to how much is generally coming on on a day-to-day basis. So let's say my particular body might go, Selene normally eats, you know, 25 to 30 grams of carbs with each meal. So I know that when she's eating, I'm going to pump out X amount of insulin. So all of a sudden you've got two, three times that coming in in one go. And I guess the other point to the test is that it would be very rare for someone to eat, well, I hope it would be 75 grams of sugar with no proteins or fats. Like that in itself is just ridiculous. Even if you were to go and eat a really, really high carb meal, like let's say you go out for pasta or something like that. I don't know. It's going to have most likely some form of proteins or fats in it which is going to help stabilize your blood sugar response whereas with this test you're literally just going and drinking 75 grams of sugar on its own
2: (laughs) so crazy and i remember sitting in there because i was an older 38 when i had my first (laughs) pregnancy and 41 when i had my second so they do like a secondary test when you're over a certain age and I remember feeling like I was going to throw up because yeah. <laughs> it, was so, it was so big for me because I had hyperemesis as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's its crazy that you put it into context of that much sugar. And no, you're right. No one tells you how to prepare for that that test.
1: Mm. No. So, so they don't they don't ask these questions at all to individuals. What is your diet? What are you consuming before deciding the dosage of glucose? They give every single woman the exact same dose and test them all the same, not taking into account their their daily, you know, uh, diet, uh, how they mm-hmm. live their life, even, you know, I, I guess size,
0: shape, all of that kind of stuff. Wow. That's um. It's so- just a one size fits all approach, I think. And I think that's the big issue is like all pregnant women have a different health history. All pregnant women have, um, you know, eat different amounts of carbohydrates, have a different blood sugar control. And so it's just inappropriate really to be classing us all the same. And then arguably anyway, if someone was to have an issue with blood sugar, like Why are we waiting until 26 to 28 weeks to kind of pick that up? Why are we not actioning that really early in pregnancy and saying, look, there is this underlying predisposition to um, blood sugar issues, which means you are more at risk of gestational diabetes. Let's not wait till 26 weeks to actually work that out. And let's start making it those changes, those dietary changes like. Now rather than waiting till then. And, you know, the argument there is that, well, at that 26 to 28 weeks is when women are becoming more insulin resistant. But, you know, I think I'll eat my words, but I would be hard pressed finding someone that had really good blood sugar control to start with that just spontaneously develops gestational diabetes at the end of pregnancy, right? Like it's, there is an underlying issue there. We're just not screening for it.
2: <laughs> right. And, and so in the UK, I've been told that where I'm from they don't test in that same way mm. it's it's an option but they don't test unless someone's pre presupposed to having yeah. diabetes so yeah
0: yeah and I the, the other like the the irony is that if you do get a positive diagnosis from the GTT test the recommendation is then to go home and do at-home glucose monitoring anyway, where you're looking for a fasting blood glucose of no more than five and a two-hour postprandial, which means two hours after eating blood glucose of no more than seven. And I just, yeah, can't really understand why we're maybe not starting there. If that's then the recommendation anyway, like say for someone like me who was low risk, that was what I was recommended to do, but equally someone that gets diagnosed with GDM is also recommended to do that and then receives dietary advice, which is another issue in of itself as what they're recommended to do from a dietary perspective. But, yeah, it's just, like, very strange. <laughs> so
1: what are the parameters that they're looking mm. at when they do the test? What are the parameters? And what if women are just outside of that? What could that mean? And mm-hmm. then if they go and do the daily testing and it is within the normal range what is that telling them
0: um yeah so the 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 positive diagnosis as per like the royal college of um royal australian college of gps is that you have um two hour postprandial from the the glucose tolerance test a fasting blood glucose of more than eight and then as i said yeah the recommendation is to go away and do that at home glucose monitoring Essentially, the I mean, there are plenty of reasons why you could be just outside of that. It could be like, A, that that's just a huge amount of carbohydrates and your body's not cleared that quite efficiently. Obviously, when you're going home and doing that measurement at home, it's very unlikely you're sitting down to eat 75 grams of sugar you're probably having maybe still some carbohydrates but it's not just going to be like a a glass of sugar on its own so like i think the test in general is just very unrealistic of what women would actually be eating on a day-to-day basis anyway if you are measuring slightly high at home like the reality is that blood sugar control is very simple like if you've got high blood sugar, that's an indication that your body's intolerant to carbohydrates. At the end of the day, it's an intolerance to carbohydrates. And so the recommendation needs to be that there is a moderation in carbohydrate intake. And we're also looking at proteins and fats and really increasing those. So I think if you do have a GDM diagnosis, obviously, you know, you should get ideally one-on-one advice anyway, but like you want to move away from having carb centric meals. So that's going to be things like your oatmeal, porridge, pastas, sandwiches, things like that still have carbohydrates, but you need to be thinking them as as them more of a condiment on the plate than like the, I guess, hero of the dish, because having high blood sugar is an indication that your body cannot tolerate the amount of carbohydrate that you're eating. And it's really as simple as that like increasing protein and moderating the amount of carbohydrate. But when you look at what's recommended from the Australian guidelines point of view, they recommend uh, carbohydrates with every meal and every snack. And they recommend like protein of minimum two serves a day, which to me just like, I was like sweating with anger when I was reading them. <laughs> because it just makes it makes no sense like with what we understand about physiology and what that high blood sugar is telling us your body's just intolerant to carbohydrates and not able to handle what's coming in so why are we then getting you to eat them all the time
1: (laughs) so what can you explain what the risks are to Mm. women Mm-hmm. who uh, whose levels are maybe higher if they're not able to control through diet mm-hmm. what are the actual risks because this diagnosis of gestational diabetes is now leading to huge recommendations of induction at 39 mm-hmm. weeks. and even for women who are who have normal sugar levels Or normal, you know, they they're testing their daily levels and they're normal. They've now been kind of slapped with this label and put in this box. And even if they're able to control it, they are being recommended induction at 39 weeks, and this whole big baby, you know, Mm. part is kind of coming up. So, can you maybe just explain from your nutritional point of view, and also from the baby's point of view, what are the actual risks? And yeah, we. What I want to really do in in this interview with you is just help women create questions mm-hmm. and go. So will go to their caregivers and go. Do I actually need this test? You're telling me this, but it doesn't make sense. So, yeah. Would you mind explaining from like what are the risks?
0: Yeah, I think well, the big one that's always talked about is macrosomia with the larger baby, and I guess that's the the reason that induction is. Recommended, but it's not all. It doesn't always. It's not a like an A plus B equals C sort of example where all women that are that have gestational diabetes even end up um, with a larger baby. And you hear that all the time, where women are told that their baby's measuring too big or what have you, and then the baby comes out at like two point nine kilos, right? So yes, it is a risk factor, but it's not, uh, I guess, a definitive outcome. There is also, I guess, with unmanaged high blood sugar risk, if it continues to be high and you were to do nothing about it, you'll probably end up with a type 2 diabetes diagnosis outside of pregnancy. Like that is a risk for you. And then there is some research as well showing, I guess, that baby is at risk later in life of developing, um, you know, like metabolic health conditions and those sorts of things. But I think that more so comes from blood sugar issues are such an environmental issue, like it's your diet, it's what you're eating day to day. So I don't know necessarily that we can make that association that it's actually what's happening when the baby's in gestation versus there being no environmental change later on in life, if that makes sense. But I think, uh, I guess to answer your question, you can manage your blood sugar just like so easily. I think that just really needs to be acknowledged that it's, it's, um, it might not necessarily feel easy, but it's really simple to do. It's not hard. And at the end of the day, if you're able to present those readings to your healthcare provider and say, look, I am measuring my blood sugars. it's I think it's recommended about four times a day on fasting and they're under five and measuring them two hours after eating and they're under seven. Like you essentially don't have gestational diabetes, right? That's proof that your body is clearing that glucose really effectively, both fasting and after eating. And at the end of the day, like it's up to you what i guess advice you take and follow as a result of that but regardless of whether you've gotten a positive reading to a glucose tolerance test if you're able to provide that evidence that your blood sugars are actually well managed day to day i think that's like proof enough that you know you're not at risk of those complications
2: that's um it's very interesting isn't it (laughs) What if uh, somebody, what does those day tests look like? What do they have to do? Do they have to do a pinprick or?
0: Yeah, pin pinprick. You can buy, um, they're really not too expensive. They're about 50 to $80. There's, um, I've always forget the name. It's something, I think Freedom Libre, Libre or something like that. But if you just Google um, glucose, um, blood glucose monitor or finger prick, it's normally the first one that comes up. Um, and they're around that $50 to um, $80 mark. So it's just a finger prick. And then you get little test strips as well. So it's super easy to do. You just prick your finger um, on waking. Um, and that's why you're looking for that five or under measurement. Um, and then you basically just put the strip up to your finger. A little bit of blood goes into that. Um, and then you put that strip into the reader and it will tell you um, what your glucose is measuring at. And then you just want to do it two hours after eating as well to understand and and really what that reading is telling you i guess is whether you're eating too many carbohydrates for your body right like that essentially is what that two hours after eating is measuring and so for example if your um your reading after breakfast is consistently high um but your readings after lunch and dinner are fine well that's an indication that whatever you're having at breakfast you need to make some tweaks there right so let's just say it's i don't know a banana smoothie um, with minimal protein in it and maybe you've got some fats in there so how you would be adapting that is let's not maybe take out the banana but if you're having one let's drop it back to half and maybe add some raspberries in there or even some i know this will sound weird but like some frozen zucchini and let's really increase that protein amount to make sure that you're having at least 25 30 grams of protein in that smoothie then you're going to measure it the next day and most likely it's going to be under seven now because you've um adjusted the amount of carbohydrate and you've also increased the amount of protein. And that's really like your biggest bang for buck strategy when it comes to improving your blood sugar is looking at making sure you are having a full serve of protein with every single meal. And if your blood sugars are measuring high after that meal, you do need to make some adjustments to the carbohydrate serving.
2: Mm, and you know what it's like when you're pregnant as you know Mm. you're craving carbohydrates Mm -hmm. as well so it's it's hard for a pregnant woman to yeah that 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 balance isn't it
0: yeah definitely i I think it can be hard i think ultimately like if you've been probably labeled with that gdm diagnosis you're probably going to be highly motivated to see that change on the blood sugar strips right but i think in an ideal setting where kind of getting that information well before you're at trimester three. So you can make really informed decisions about what kind of testing you want to do. And um, there's also another test that's not commonly talked about, which is frucosamine testing. You can normally request that from your midwife as well, but that's sort of another alternative to the GTT test. And that's just a blood test. And it does measure a two to three week trend in um, blood sugar control. So again, it's really non-invasive why we're not doing this test instead. I don't know. Um, I can't answer that question for you, but yeah, that, that test you can request it around say 27, 28 weeks because it is that two to three week trend. It's still going to be accurate for picking up that, uh, you know, adaptation of being more insulin resistant at that point in pregnancy. So that's also an alternate option. And and normally if you have a midwife, you can have that sort of conversation with your midwife and maybe ask if you could opt for that test instead or whether that would be a suitable option for you. So that's a really great question as well to to take to your care provider.
2: I love that. I didn't even know that, that was a thing. Mm. No. Yes, yeah,
0: like again, if you don't know options A, B, and C exist, right? You'll probably only be offered option A. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's just you know, it's just worrying because you you feel like you, as a new mom, like you, you know you want to trust the yeah. people who you uh, have chosen to care for you, but when they're not giving you all the options and really explaining to you the reasons and why, and the benefits or the risks or alternatives, then it could lead you down a whole different journey, mm. which may not have been needed. And that's why we do what we do is because it's about asking questions and mm. I've taken this from from when we interviewed Bini, Nicola that mm. you know the quality of the questions you ask determine the quality of the answers you get. Mm. So with any test or procedure or intervention or recommendation you need to empower yourself in Mm -hmm. either finding out this information or asking the right questions to ensure you're getting all the information to make the decision as to whether you want to have the test and Mm -hmm. to know that any intervention, any test is a recommendation. It's not the law. You don't have to do anything if you don't want to, Mm. scans or anything. And I'm not here saying...
0: Of, say, course.
1: <laughs> no, of course not but it's important to understand i think a lot of women don't understand because they're not given any of the options it's just okay here's your referral go and get the test you know they're not really explained what's involved with the test uh that they have to fast before the test because that's the other thing as well mm. that you've got to fast for a long period of
0: time yeah or you overnight. have to do it in the morning so about 8 to 12 hours of overnight fasting which again yeah, no one really, explain. I often find that with blood tests as well, no, no one really tells you that.
1: <laughs> and so if they
0: fast longer or less, could that have yes, a yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. change in the results? Yeah. yeah,
0: definitely. So if you fast for too long or too little, that will, that will definitely affect the results.
1: Yeah. See, that was never explained to me. When I did my test 11 years ago, it wasn't the two hour testing and Mm -hmm. I didn't have to fast. I did it in in the afternoon and I went in and I think they took bloods and then I drank it and then I had to wait an hour and then they took bloods again and I was fine. And then that's why for my second pregnancy, I was like, I know I'm low risk and Mm. I'm personally making an informed decision. I'm not going to test for the second baby. And my gosh, the the way I was looked at Mm. by these medical caregivers was like, how dare you make Mm. that decision for yourself? And I really had to stand into my power and advocate and go, I I understand the risks. I'm taking responsibility for any risks. And that was the decision that was right for me. But yeah, wow. It's been
0: such an eye-opening chat. Yeah. I mean, I think if pregnancy doesn't teach you to advocate for yourself, like nothing will, right? (laughs) But yeah, it is just interesting, the language, I guess, you're not really offered these different options. And I think, unfortunately, like it is just up to women to do this research themselves and to understand these different options that they have, um, to ask lots of questions. And I think a huge part is just understanding that, like, Our healthcare system is a system and unfortunately everyone is basically placed into the same box, um, often regardless of their health, um, their current health and how they look after that. And so you also need to understand your individual risk for certain things. Now, I'm not saying... No one should go and do the glucose tolerance test. I do think that maybe in some situations it is an appropriate test. I do think that's also questionable when we look at things like frucosamine. Why are we maybe getting women who do have gestational diabetes to even drink 75 grams of sugar or something that they're completely intolerant to is Uh, sort of a little strange to me that we have other options, but we're still doing this test anyway. But, you know, I do think there are situations where that, that might be appropriate, but I think what's not appropriate is really just classing everyone into the same box. And then, like, from the management point of view as well, when you look at those recommendations, it also makes no sense that we're basically telling women to continue eating really high amounts of a food that they're intolerant to. Like, at the end of the day, it's as simple as that getting that diagnosis means you're intolerant to that particular food. Doesn't mean you need to completely cut it out or go keto or anything wild like that, but you do need to like make some changes to your nutrition. But when you look at the guidelines and even, I guess, bringing it right back to when you look at the just overall pregnancy guidelines, like women are recommended to eat eight and a half serves of grains a day. Um, and I did the math sort of based off that, plus, you know, fruits and other sources where we might get carbohydrates from. It's like minimum 200, 250 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is fairly substantial for any female, but also very substantial for females that have a pre existing issue with blood sugar. So, you know, it's, I guess, really sad because I think you could be feeling like you're doing all the right things and literally be following the guidelines to a T. And that could be perpetuating the issue for you from the very start.
2: Wow. <laughs> I think what would be your biggest piece of advice then? So a woman's listening to this. She's early pregnancy. <laughs> she is, you know, got all these, this journey ahead of her. Mm. And and you've been on this journey yourself now because it's different when you're a yeah. practitioner. And then when you become pregnant, then you see things mm. differently. So give us like an ABC you know you're pregnant what do we do like what's the best way to go about this
0: get blood tests done early in pregnancy so that you can make some really informed decisions early on about your blood sugar so i sort of gave those markers earlier but you want to hba1c below 5.3 percent ideally a fasting insulin of three to five obviously if yours is like six that's not an important difference but um much over that and you're kind of wanting to be going okay i do have maybe a slight tendency toward insulin resistance, right? So I'm gonna wanna make some changes early on. And then a fasting blood glucose of under five, With your iron, you're wanting a ferritin minimum of 50. You're wanting, there's other markers involved in iron status, but just for simplicity's sake, a ferritin, a minimum of 50. And then you also want all of your key nutrients done as well, which is something we haven't sort of touched on, but things like zinc, iodine, you know, copper, you're wanting B12, folate, and ideally, like if it is available to you, getting those interpreted by someone who's not just looking at standard reference ranges because, the issue with our reference ranges in Australia is basically that they are averages. So for example, how those reference ranges might be created is the pathology lab takes all women 19 to 50 who went and had their iron tested between, you know, January, 2021 and June, 2021, they create the average of that. And that's what creates the reference range, but people who are sick, unwell, have deficiencies aren't pulled out of the reference range creation um so that's why we end up with such wide loosey-goosey reference ranges so my other piece of advice there would be if you are doing bloods and you're told like everything looks fine that's great Mm -hmm. nothing that you need to do like you need to ask questions about that as well because Yeah, we see all the time in clinic where people are told their blood tests are fine. And it's just quite frankly, not the case. Because again, if we've got these really wide reference ranges, we're not picking up those like early wrong way go back signs, if that makes sense. There is a fantastic resource. I would also say that's not my own, but Lily Nichols, I'm sure you maybe have heard of her before. She's a a dietitian actually in Canada, and she's got an incredible book. So if you know, working with a practitioner one-on-ones not available to you. Her book's called Real Food for Pregnancy. Um, and she's also a diabetes educator as well. And um, she's a fantastic, amazing resource. So that book, you know, might be 30, $50, something like that, but it's sort of like you're go-to bible when it comes to pregnancy nutrition so i would say if um if you can't work with someone one-on-one and get that personalized advice your next best option would be purchasing that book because she's fantastic
1: wow that's amazing thank Mm -hmm. you yeah Ah. that information is so valuable and thank you so much for coming on and sharing that it's i think it's going to help just again open open up some questions I hope it does uh, for, for women to kind of start asking for themselves and and really understanding the test if it's you know if they're low risk understanding their body more because I think at the end of the day when you understand how your body works and that's when you can work with it and like you said if it's changing it's quite simple just you know changing certain foods mm-hmm. you're intaking and things like wow like yeah, because it's just it's alarming to me. The diagnosis of gestational diabetes has increased mm. so much over mm. the last 10 years, really, since they changed the way that they test as well, I think, which is then leading to more intervention, more induction, which is then leading to more of a cascade of intervention, which is affecting women's experiences and trust in their body and and the system. And what is that knock-on effect having when if they came back to it, it may not have even been necessary. Mm. Um, And this, this is just what Nicola and I are seeing on a weekly basis is. And then that fear-based, you know, the recommendations are coming in very fear-based, big baby, big baby. And it's turning from, from this gestational diabetes, you're going to have a big baby, big, you know, and it's just uh, this knock-on effect that Mm. we are seeing in, This is why this information is just so, so important. So how could women reach out to you or work with you
0: preconception or if they are already pregnant or if they have a diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Can you help them on this journey? Yeah, definitely. So you can always come and find me um, on Instagram is really where I'm most active. So my handle there is Celen Douglas underscore nutrition. Um, otherwise my website, which is just com. So you can work with me um, one-on-one, which is really kind of like the most personalized way. We do all of the blood testing and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, very different to getting blood testing done. If you've had that done in the past where you're told, oh, you know, this is a bit... Hi, or this is a bit low, here's a supplement, see you later. It's very in-depth and um, very, I guess, <clears throat> strategic in how we action things as well and re, um, re-measure and re-monitor different um, aspects of your health. Um, but yeah, you can work with us or with me rather on a um, one-on-one consultation basis. Um, I also have a... Um, small digital product called the A to Z preconception plan. Um, So that's uh, available as well on my website. And that will also give you all of the information about how to organize blood testing um, preconception or in trimester one. And you can also find all of that information on assessing your blood sugar early and what markers you're looking for and really how to make those dietary tweaks. If you do find that you have say a blood sugar issue or an iron issue or something like that, Um, and there's all of the supplement information in there too. And you have your own podcast too, don't you? Yes. Yeah. I always forget to mention that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I do have my own podcast that's called Holistic Health Chat. So that goes through basically all women's health issues, different topics involved in that. So, yeah, you can find that on Spotify or um, Apple Podcasts. We'll
1: definitely share all of that um, for you in our show notes. And, yeah, thank you so much. And. We'd love to have you on in the future. Maybe when you can share yeah. your own
0: birth story. Yes. yes, I would love to. I'm very excited.
1: <laughs> I would love I'm excited to. For you, but yeah, enjoy the rest of your pregnancy, and thank you. Hopefully, we can have you
0: on and we can yeah. you can share. thanks so much
1: thanks thanks so
0: much for having me and yeah i've just i've loved this conversation today so thanks again thank you thank you for listening to this episode of holistic health chats if you enjoyed this episode i would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in itunes as this allows me to help more women just like you holistic health chats is not intended to replace medical advice so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health if you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat please head to celandouglas.com forward slash book for more information